Welcome here. Thanks for coming, everyone. Um, yeah, this is Women's Fellowship Night with uh, men invited. Glad you guys came. Thanks for coming. Thanks for heeding my um, plea last week or whatever. Um, <clears throat> there's a microphone here, so but this is just for the recording. This is going to be on, what, our YouTube channel or whatever. So um, we're recording it. Um, but there's no, there's no amplification in here. So is everyone hearing me? Okay. Or do I need to yell louder? Matthew, Sheila, you guys can hear me. Okay. Um, while we go here, feel free to grab a coffee or cookies or whatever. Go to the restroom. It's going to be a little bit longer than you're used to as far as time wise of an hour and 15 minutes or so. So just feel free, but but also know that there's no amplification, so any noise you're making is kind of competing with with me and everyone else here. So um, hopefully that makes sense. So you ladies are studying eschatology, and uh, we thought it would be a good idea to kind of go through some eschatology together for one of these fellowship nights just to kind of prep you for what you're going to see in the book of Thessalonians. So that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to look at the the story of the end, uh, or the, the study of the end of the redemption story. So what, what happens at the end? So outline for tonight, what we're going to look at, we're just going to ask, what is eschatology? Then we're going to talk about why should we study eschatology? What's the, what's the value in it? And then I'm going to give you an overview of future events as I understand it. So kind of a, just a, just an overview. I'm not going to be able to go super deep into everything. I'm also uh, not going to have a lot of time to answer questions, but I might open it up at the end for questions or, you know, we'll just see this, this might be just overwhelming so much information. We'll see how this goes. But if, um, if there are a whole bunch of questions, maybe we'll do this another time, or maybe we'll do just a Q&A time where, where I can kind of answer in more depth anything that you have questions about. So let's go into it then. First point tonight, what is eschatology? Eschatology comes from the, the Greek word eschatos, um, which, which means last. It's the last, eschatos. And then another Greek word, logos, is a, a word, or a logion is a saying, or a, a, a logia is sayings, plural. And so we're, we're talking about eschatos logos, or eschatos logia, sayings about the last time, sayings about the end. The Greek word logia coming into English means something like somebody who speaks on a certain subject, or just more simply, the, the study of a certain subject. So again, eschatology then is the study of the last times. And you're kind of used to that theology, right? There's, there's, there's those words that, that kind of talk about that, a, a study of a, a certain subject. There's theology, anthropology, and you kind of get the, the prefix. And then the ology means a study of, a talk about. And so we're doing a study of the end times. The study of the last things, or just simply a study of the end. What's going to happen at the end? So it's the, it's the doctrine of, of the ending of God's story, right? You've probably heard people talk about history as his story, God's story, what he's doing through history. 
Um, this is the end of everything that God's doing that started in creation. Remember, there's, there's creation, then there's the fall, then there's God's plan of salvation and redemption, and then how does that whole thing end? That's what we're, that's what we're looking at in the study of eschatology. How does everything end? What is, what is God's final plan? And when we study eschatology, it's usually broken up into uh, a couple of parts. There's the personal eschatology, the, the personal eschatology, and there's cosmic eschatology. Now, normally, you probably, when you think about eschatology or the study of the end, you probably think about cosmic eschatology, um, but, but both are important. Personal eschatology is kind of what, 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 what's our end? What happens when, when we die? And then cosmic eschatology is, is kind of more broadly what happens at the end of, of history. So personal eschatology is kind of more personal. Cosmic eschatology, what happens at the end? Personal eschatology is things like death. What happens at death? There's the intermediate state for believers and unbelievers, right? In our, we, we die, we, we're separate from our body. Our, our soul, if we're a believer, goes... We just typically think of going to heaven, dwelling with the Lord, being with Christ in heaven. For unbelievers, there's a corresponding thing that we just usually just kind of generally speak about as hell. Uh, but there's an intermediate state. And then there's the eternal state where the believer or the unbeliever is resurrected and is either in heaven or hell or the lake of fire or the, whatever we want to call it. That's, that's personal eschatology. We're not going to really spend a lot of time on that tonight. Cosmic eschatology is the study of future events that are foretold in scripture that lead up to the eternal state where we'll dwell with God forever in heaven. But before we go into the contents of eschatology and and cosmic eschatology, we want to talk about an important question. Why study eschatology? Why should we study this? This is, um, this is a, a question that, that needs to be answered and maybe, maybe uh, isn't always answered very well. So why study eschatology? Uh, we would never, or at least most, most of us would never do this, we would never read a book that we were really into and then just decide, you know what, I'm not going to bother reading the end and find out what happens right? Would you ever do, you wouldn't, you wouldn't do that. If it was exciting, if it was interesting, you'd want to find out what happens at the end. And some of us might even want to get a little excited and find out what happens at the end before we even start into that book. So the end is important. Um, in, in anything, the end is important. What's going to happen? How does it work out? And so if we value the beginning of God's purpose in creation, surely we're going to have to value his purpose in recreation and redemption and all that he kind of has done up to that. So it's important. Uh, Eschatology is the end of the story. It's the climax. It's the kind of God's victory uh, over evil. And so we want to, we want to find out what happens. How does this work out? Uh, What is, what does God end up doing? And so if we care about what's God's doing now, then how much more don't we care about what he's doing in the future? Second reason why we should study eschatology is God has revealed it in scripture. 
right? We're not, we're not kind of delving into things that he hasn't revealed. We're just looking at what has he said that he's going to do. And whatever God has revealed in Scripture, that's for us. It's for us to know. It's for us to, to study. He's given it for us, for our good. And so Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And so the, there's, a, there's certain things that are secret that God hasn't revealed. We're not to, to dwell into those and dive into those and try to figure out what he hasn't spoken about. But whatever he has spoken about, it's for us to know, for us to study. And he's revealed it in scripture because he wants us to understand these things. In Acts 20, verse 26 and 27, Paul says, Therefore I testify to you this day, that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And so Paul says that his ministry was declaring the whole counsel of God, everything that God has revealed. And, and for him, he says that makes him innocent of the blood of all men. I've, I've declared the whole counsel of God, therefore I'm innocent of the blood of all men. And, and by implication... For a pastor, anyways, there's guilt if we hold back part of God's counsel. And so we are to proclaim the whole counsel of God. And so there's, there's kind of this, this onus on me as a pastor that I need to teach the whole counsel of God. That means we need to study the whole counsel of God so that we can proclaim it. And uh, I think that's very important. Um, you know, sometimes you'll, you'll hear things from from certain pastors that will say things like, well, eschatology is a, a bit of a divisive doctrine, and so we don't want to teach that. We don't want to have a position on that. Um, and that seems to be the opposite of Paul's practice. He wants to declare the whole counsel of God. And he says in that context, I, I kept nothing back that would be helpful. And so we don't want to keep something back that would be helpful. First uh, Thessalonians chapter... Four. This is kind of one of the, the texts that, that made us think we should teach on some eschatology, because you guys are going to be getting to this uh, next year sometime. But First Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says, We do not want you to be uninformed. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. Well, about what, Paul? We don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who, do, who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And so Paul doesn't want the Thessalonians to be uninformed about what happens when a believer dies. That's what he's talking about when he says those who have fallen asleep. He doesn't want them to be uninformed about Christ's de- uh, Christ's return about meeting Christ in the air. And so there, there's these things that, that Paul is, is anxious for the, the believers to understand. And, uh, and so 
if that's for the Thessalonians, it's also for us to understand as well. And, uh, and then he says again, encourage one another, therefore, with these words. So I, I don't want you to not to be ignorant about this thing. And it's supposed to be an encouragement to the believers. So we'll, we'll look at that passage in more detail in a little bit, but that's, that's just kind of part of the reason. God has revealed this, therefore we should know about it. A third reason to study eschatology is that we should study eschatology because God has revealed future things that we might know that he is God. God wants us, God wants to almost like show his glory by, sh- by revealing the future, by showing us that he's a God that knows the future and declares it before it happens. That's part of what it means to be God is that you know the future and kind of God stakes his godness, if I can say it that way, he stakes his godness on the fact that he knows the future. And for example, in, in Isaiah 41 on the screen there, uh, Isaiah 41, 21 to 24, he's, he's taunting the idols of the world and he's, he's challenging them. And he says to them, basically do something if you're a, if you think you're a God or tell us the future. And so he's, he's challenging the idols and he says to them, set forth your case, says the Lord, bring your proofs, says the King of Jacob, let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. In other words, tell us the future. If you're a, if you're a God, tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter that we may know that you are God's do good or do harm that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. So God's godness is based on the fact that he knows the future. Very similarly, Isaiah 44 verse six is, verses six to eight. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. And so here we see God again, let them, let them declare what is to come. Or again, Isaiah 46 verse eight, he says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. And what does it mean to be God? He says, I am one who declares the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. And so there again, we see God is a God who declares the end from the beginning. Before it happens, that's what, that's what God does. He accomplishes his purpose. He declares what he's going to do. Every once in a while, he, he kind of gives us a, a foretaste or some foreknowledge of what he's going to do 
so that when he does it in the future, we can go, wow, what an amazing God that he would prophesy, like the things that Isaiah prophesied 700 years before Christ, right to the T, exactly what happened. And God does that to show us that there is nobody like him, that he is an amazing and glorious and awesome God. And so one of the reasons we want to study eschatology is so that we can then see we know what's going to happen. And when it happens, we go, wow, God told us about that even before it happened. What an amazing God he is. And so there's there's this sense in which God enjoys telling his people the future that we might come to know him and trust him in greater ways, so that we can realize who he is. And if we don't study the future, we're going to miss something about who God is and what he is able to do. So that's another reason, a third reason to study eschatology. A fourth reason to study eschatology is eschatology is revealed to warn the wicked about what's going to happen, the, the punishments of hell. And so there's this, this sense in which eschatology warns sinners that, that they better repent because there is a terrifying end coming for them of punishment and they're not going to escape and God's going to win and what he has planned, he's surely going to accomplish it. And so there's these warnings throughout scripture and nobody spoke about the, 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 these warnings more than our compassionate Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who more than anyone else tells us about the reality of hell. And so, for example, in Luke 13, it says there was some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What a word there, likewise, just the way that Pilate killed these people in this gruesome thing in the same way, likewise, you will also perish if you don't repent. Or the 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And that's part of the study of eschatology or Luke sixteen twenty four. Uh, the, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man died and was buried, and in Hades being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus at his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that it, you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And so there's this sense in which we see in this passage the, the reality of hell. The, there's this, this torment there. There's no, there's no hope of mercy there. The, the people in hell are, are longing for the least mercy, a drop of water to cool my tongue, but there's no chance of them even receiving that. And uh, this is a, just an amazing passage. I'd love to, to look at it in more detail one day. But that's 
part of eschatology is understanding the doctrine of hell and the, the future end for the wicked. But then another reason to study eschatology more for, for those of us who are believers is that it's, it's revealed in Scripture to motivate us towards righteousness. And this is the most often what we see in Scripture is that the end times are, are it's not to, to tweak our curiosity. Uh, it, it, it's not to, you know, um, just kind of so that we can know what's going to happen here or there or be reading the newspaper. And or it's not it's not to give us any kind of intellectual advantage. It's always to motivate us to live righteously and godly and holy in the present age. And so it's, it's to motivate us to faithful service for the Lord. Now, eschatology teaches us about our reward and about God's final victory, which encourages us again to faithfulness now. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 3, the very beginning of the book, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written for the time is near. So blessed are those who hear and keep what is written for the time is near. Revelation 22, 6, near the end of the book of Revelation, and he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And so there's this sense in which we're to read the the book of Revelation, we're to understand the book of Revelation, and we're to keep the prophecy of the book. Blessed is the one who who keeps it. So we need to read it, we need to understand it, and then there's this sense in which we're to in some way live accordingly. That's what he means to to keep the words of the book. We're to, we're to have this book influence our life to faithful service for the Lord. And, uh, and that's where the blessing comes in. And so that's what revelation, that's what the, the doctrine of the end is for is so that it's going to motivate us and, and we'll be blessed if we keep the rewards. And, uh, it's this promise. It's, it's not going to be very much longer. That's what, that's what scripture often holds out for us. It's not going to be much longer. And then, our reward will be ours. Revelation 22, just a little bit further on from that passage. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time, the time is near. Let the evildoer be, do evil still. Let the filthy be filthy still. And the righteous still do right. And the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon. I am bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And then blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. And so here the Lord's telling us the, the time is near, I'm coming soon, my reward is with me, and, and therefore, 
you need to continue to do righteous. If, if you're a, a saved person, continue doing right. If you're a, a, a holy person, continue to act holy because I'm coming soon. My reward's with me. I know what's going to happen on the beginning and the end. And there's this blessing for you if your robes are white and you have the right to eat of the tree of life. And you can enter the city because outside of that city is where hell and suffering and, and wickedness is. But you are blessed if you are going to be able to be in that place. And so the, the, this is, these are all things that are intended to motivate us and encourage us to serve the Lord well while we're alive. And again, another one here, Second Peter. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. We're going to talk about what is this day of the Lord. But this day of the Lord is going to come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Again, Jesus is talking about repaying us for what we've done in this life. That's our reward. The works, our works are going to be exposed. And then Peter says, since all these things are thus thus to be dissolved... What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming day of God? Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, my beloved, and again, he comes back to this. Therefore, my beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish, and at peace. So what sort of people ought you to be? That's, that's kind of the, this motivating factor in godliness, waiting for, and, and even like hastening, longing for the coming of this, this future day of God. And because of these things, again, therefore, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish, and again, in holiness and at peace. And so one of the reasons why we're to, to study eschatology is because it, it motivates us for these things to be holy and godly and live the way that God would have us live. So that's five reasons why we should study eschatology. And uh, now we're going to study eschatology. So hopefully that's encouraging. Uh, that's kind of the, the applicational part of tonight. Uh, the rest is going to be more information, but, but take that information and, and let it motivate you to, to live for the Lord. Or let it motivate you to repent and, and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ if you're not a believer. Because there's a, a future hell that's going to happen. And, uh, and the, these are serious things. And God is going to do everything that he says he's going to do. So let's go now into an overview of future events. And let's, this will be a just very brief interactive part. What are some future things that are prophesied to happen? And, and this is, that's an actual question for you. What's, what are some things that you know that's, that's going to happen in the future from scripture? Just shout it out. Resurrection. Resurrection. Good. What else happens in the future? Final judgment. Final judgment. I heard Lauren saying something. Oh, he's got my, Lauren has my notes in advance. So uh, let's not let him give any of these answers. Hey, Uh, anyone else was, so resurrection, final judgment. What else happens? 
Tribulation. Yeah, there's a tribulation. Anything else? Where are we going to go? We're going to, okay, rapture. Yeah. Where are we going to go after that? Where do we end up at the very end? Heaven. Heaven. Good. Heaven and hell, right? So the, what, what we typically call the eternal state. Um, what's before the eternal state? Death. death. Yeah, death, death and judgment. Millennium. The millennial kingdom. Great. The millennial kingdom. The millennium happens. Uh, I think you guys got pretty much everything. So the, the rapture, the tribulation resurrection or resurrections depending on your view judgment or judgments again depending on your understanding of the future the marriage supper of the lamb the millennial kingdom and the eternal state these are some of the things that happen in the future and what we're going to do is we're going to try to put these into a bit of a chronological order and so i'm going to cover all of those things that you just saw on the screen and um and by the way we're going to somehow get a, a copy of the PDF of these slides if you want them uh, so that you can look at these again, so that you can kind of even look at some of these scriptures a little bit slower. But I'm, gonna, I'm just going to cover these things in the order that I believe they happen according to scripture. And I'm going to give you a brief ec- explanation of what these things are. And then I'm going to try to maybe give you some brief arguments why I think they're in that order that, that I give them to you in. And so... We're going to cover the event, a brief explanation of what it is. Then we're going to cover the order in which it occurs. And I'm going to explain briefly again why I think it happens in that order. And so that's what we're going to do with all of those things that we had on the screen. Now, when it comes to all of those future things, rapture, tribulation, resurrections, judgments, millennial kingdom, eternal state, what are, what are we the church, what are we told to be waiting for? What are we, what's the next thing that we're waiting to happen? Second coming. coming. Some people think that. Um, Yeah, for sure. Some people think that. Um, What, what else, what else is going to, is anything going to happen before the second coming? Rapture. Okay, so, and those are really the two views, rapture or the second coming. Um, and, and, and you know what? It doesn't even matter which view you take because we're waiting for the coming of Christ no matter what view you have. Does that make, does you see that? If you think that's the second coming... If you think it's the second coming, then you, you, you probably don't even see a rapture in Scripture. You think those two passages are the same. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But whatever view you have of the end times, it should be, and, and, and you know, I, I guess there's room for some other views and stuff, but it should be that we're waiting for the coming of Christ and, and nothing else is in between that. So... We're, we're looking forward to and, and watching out for Christ. Now, if you wanted to show that from Scripture, where would you go to show that the church is to be waiting for the coming of the Lord? Anyone want to? I think of the wise and foolish virgins. 
Okay, the wise and foolish virgins in, in Matthew 25, that's, a, that's a, a good place to go for that, for sure. Uh, anyone else? Well, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's go do it. Let's look, let's look. I'll show you something that I would go to. So Titus chapter two, try to, and, and again, all the scriptures are on the screen, but if you, if you want, you can, you can flip there in your Bible. Um, Titus chapter two, 11 to 14, the great passage for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And this grace is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passage and and, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And then here it is, waiting for our blessed hope. Waiting for our, our blessed hope. What is our blessed hope? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself us for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify him for himself, a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. And so we are waiting for our blessed hope and, and God's grace trains us. It's training us to, to wait for this blessed hope, the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory. And so that's one place that we could go to, to show this, this, um, this is what we're supposed to do. First Corinthians one, seven, you are not lacking any gift. Paul says, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, what are we waiting for? The revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Phil took us to Matthew 25 there with the parable of the 10 virgins. Well, um, in that Olivet discourse, Matthew 24 and 25, Five times in that context, we have a verse like these. I'm going to show you these verses. Matthew 24, 36, the first one. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So there's this this day and hour that nobody knows. Verse 42, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. And so there's this urgency for us to, to be aware, stay awake. We don't know when the Lord is coming. Matthew 24, 44. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour. You do not expect him. Remember the Son of Man, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's coming at an hour when we don't expect. And so we need to be ready. Matthew 24, verse 50. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know. And Matthew 25, 13, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And so that's right close to that parable of the 10 virgins. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And so five times in this context, we're told to be ready anytime the Lord's coming. We don't know when, but we need to be prepared. And so the what what we call this what theologians call this is is a, a doctrine of of imminence imminence with an i 
Eminence is when something is great. Eminence is when something could happen at any moment, at any time. It's, it's near, it's at the door, it's on the brink. It could happen at any moment. Christ could come at any moment, and nobody knows the day or the hour. And, and what that tells us then is that um, there's nothing that needs to happen before this can come. Otherwise, we would, we would know the day or the hour. We would be able to kind of make some guesses, but we, we don't know the day or the hour. Nobody knows that. Um, and so we have to be ready for him to come at any time. It's, a, it's an imminent event, this, this coming of Christ. Now, question comes then, well, what, what coming of Christ are we talking about? Are we talking about the second coming of Christ? Or are we talking about the rapture coming of Christ. And Matthew 24 and 25 are, are difficult interpretational ground. Uh, and so there's, there's some debate on this whole thing in, in this section. There's, now, if, if we look at Matthew 24, 32 and 33, or, or actually, if we look at Matthew 24, probably really starting at verse 4, but for sure starting at Matthew 24, 15, to Matthew twenty four thirty five, though those pa- those verses speak about the tribulation and the second coming of Christ, and they they give signs. Remember, there's the the parable of the um, of the fig tree. There, go ahead and, and I don't have this on your screen, so this will probably be the only time where a verse isn't on your screen tonight. But go to Matthew twenty four. <clears throat> okay, um, um, I'm going to go even, I was going to look at just verse 32, but look at, look at verse 29. He says, immediately, a- and we'll, we'll, we will go back to these verses, but immediately after the tribulation of those days. So when is this? This is after the tribulation. And it's immediately after the tribulation. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man. So whatever's happening here, everyone seeing this thing, all over heaven, sorry, all over earth, they will see the sign of the, the, the they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds and from one end of heaven to the other. And so this is the second coming immediately after the tribulation. And there's these signs and it's a, a, a visible event. And so before that, Jesus says, don't go, you know, if someone says, here's Christ or there's Christ, don't go looking because everyone's going to see this thing that's happening. Then look at verse 32, the very next verse there. He says, from the fig tree, learn its, its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, what things? Well, the sun darkened, the moon not giving its light, the, the sign of the Son of Man in the heaven, whatever that is. When you, see the, when you see the Son of Man coming on the clouds, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things 
take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So we are told in this passage that there's signs that we're to watch for. But then later on in in Matthew 24 and 25, we're told that nobody knows the day or the hour or the, the thing. And so here we're told, you will know, you'll see the signs, you'll know that it's happening, learn from the fig tree. When you see the branches doing its thing, you know that it's summer's near. In the same way, when you see all those things, you know that the second coming is near. Now, everyone agrees that Matthew 24 and that section is talking about the tribulation time. And scripture is very clear, and we're going to get to this in a minute, but scripture is very clear that the tribulation period is a seven-year period. Very, very clear. Divided into two halves. And that immediately after the tribulation, Christ will return. And we just read Matthew 24, 29 to 31, which is which is right right here at the end of this note here. So we just read that. So so what does Jesus mean here? Well, and this is where there's some interpretational issues. Jesus could mean that no one knows when the tribulation time begins and so no one knows that day when he when he kind of changes to no no one knows that day. He could mean that that although there's all these signs that are going to happen, we don't know when this whole time starts. Another view could be that Jesus is speaking not about his second coming, but about his coming to gather his saints, which is sometimes called the the rapture. And I I think this is the right view, actually, that, that Jesus first tells us about the tribulation and the signs of his coming in the second coming. And then he goes back and, and he tells his disciples about that day, which is the, the, the coming in the rapture. And he says, nobody knows that day or that hour. Now, I'll, I'll come back to this. But whatever, at this moment right now, what I just want you to get is whatever view you take and however you understand the end times, we are to expect Christ at any moment because we don't know the day or the hour. And that means there's nothing on the prophetic timetable that we're waiting for. We're waiting for Christ to come. We're not waiting for the tribulation. We're not waiting for a man of lawlessness. We're not waiting for um, some resurrections to happen or judgments. We're not waiting for anything else to happen. The next thing that that could happen at any moment is that Christ could come. And uh, that's what everyone, every Christian should be, should be waiting for. And so if your view of eschatology has you expecting something that must happen before Christ can come, then you have the wrong view of eschatology right now. The, the, the right view is that Christ could come at any moment and we're not looking to see what happens in Israel. We're not looking to see what happens in Gog or Magog or, or whatever else is, you know, that all of that stuff might happen, will happen. But what we're waiting for is Christ to come and he could come at any moment. And so we have to be ready. It's an imminent coming of Christ, something could, something that could happen at any time. And again, he is coming soon. Revelation twenty two twenty. he who testifies these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Again, surely I am coming soon. 
Thessalonians 1.9. They say, and of course this is where you ladies are, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. They themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So the Thessalonians repented and believed, and now they're, they've turned away from idols and they're going to serve the living and true God. And look what else that they, they did. And, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. This is what we are to be doing right now, to be waiting for his son from heaven, who he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, the, in the book of Thessalonians, the wrath to come that Paul's talking about here, and we'll see this more clearly in a minute, the, the wrath to come that Jesus delivers us to, or delivers us from, no, he does not deliver us to the wrath to come, he delivers us from the wrath to come, and that wrath to come is speaking about the day of the Lord and the tribulation period, and Jesus is the one who delivers us from that. So, um, this, this whole teaching here on, on imminence, again, imminence with an I, imminence like that, is, is one of the primary reasons that I believe that the rapture is the first thing on the prophetic timetable. So, scripture is teaching us this waiting, we're waiting for the Son, we're waiting for Christ, and, and this is why I believe that the rapture is the first thing to happen, because, again, the, the tribulation and the second coming are all preceded by signs in scripture, things that we can look for and see. But the rapture, every verse that talks about the rapture doesn't say anything about what's happening up until that moment. It's just boom, the rapture. So the, the, the first thing I believe that happens in, is, as we look at what, what's the next thing that's going to happen on the timetable, it's this event called the rapture. Now the rapture that word doesn't appear in our English Bible. You do a word search for the word rapture, you won't find it. But it comes to us from the, the Latin word that was translated from the Greek word arpazo or harpazo, which means to snatch away. And we see this harpazo uh, to snatch away in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. And then in the Latin translation, it's rapturo, and rapturo kind of became the English word rapture. So... 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Now, the rapture itself, it's only mentioned a few times in Scripture, and it's the belief that a believer will, will be caught up, that's what that word means, rapture, to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Now, again, there's not, not everyone's agreed about this. Some people see this, this rapture as the same thing as the second coming, and they don't see it as two different events. And so there's not, there's not perfect agreement on this if, if it happens or, or when it happens. And so, some, again, some people see it as the same thing as the second coming, but I'll, I'll show you why I don't. So what do we find in Scripture? What does Scripture actually say? Well, here we go. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, key text on the rapture. We already read it once earlier today here. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, 
that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Now, a few things that, that I, you know, I should probably try to bring out here. So the thing that Paul's concerned about, or the thing that the Thessalonians are concerned about is there's some people have fallen asleep. Some, some of their number have died and, and they're, they're, they're grieved about this because they, they don't know what's happened to these people. You know, they, they thought somehow that these, these, the Thessalonians thought these people died and they're going to miss out on something good. Now, I don't know what they exactly thought they were going to miss out on, but that's what the Thessalonians are. They're grieving because they were expecting Christ to come and he didn't come yet. And already some people died and they're going, what happened to these people that died? And so I don't know if they think that they're going to miss the rapture or if they think they're going to miss the kingdom or if they somehow think they missed eternal life and now they're dead and they, they didn't get to come to the, you know, they didn't get to go to heaven. I, I'm not sure exactly what the Thessalonians were thinking, but Paul says, don't worry about that because they, they died. They're with Christ. And when Christ comes, we who are alive, we're not going to precede those who have fallen asleep. So the people that died, we're not going to have any advantage over them. We're not going to be before them because the Lord's going to come from heaven. The Lord himself will descend from heaven. That's where he is right now. He's in heaven at the right hand of God. He's going to descend from heaven with this voice of an archangel and the trumpet's going to sound and the dead in Christ, those who died in Christ are going to rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, are going to be caught up together with them in the clouds and we're going to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord, whether, you know, whether we die or whether we live, we'll always be with the Lord because when those people who are dead now, when, when this event happens, they're going to meet Christ in the air and, uh, and be with him. So Paul says, no, we, we will not precede them. We are going to be caught up. Now, that's what I wanted to show you here. Um, right here, we will be caught up. We will be raptured up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord. And, and this is important. Where do we meet the Lord here? We meet him in the air. So he comes from heaven to earth, but he's in the air. He's not, doesn't say he's on the earth. He's in the air. And we somehow are caught up and meet him in the air. Now, this word, harpazo, is used a few other times in scripture. And so I want to show you this in Acts chapter 8. Another use of this word, harpazo. And when, this is Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And when they came up out of the water, remember that Philip baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch. The spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more. This is Harpazo. He, he was caught up. Philip was caught up. And the eunuch saw him no more. 
But Philip, and the eunuch went on his way rejoicing, but Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel until he came to Caesarea. And so Philip was caught up and, and like transported to a different place than he was before. That's the same word as harpazo, to, to be caught up. Um, Paul talks about and uses this word in 2 Corinthians 12. When he talks about himself and he talks about himself in the third person, I know a man who in Christ, who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. He was, Paul was caught up into heaven. He says, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body. I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. So Paul was raptured before the rapture. He was caught up into heaven. By the way, not allowed to talk about that. So don't buy any of those junk books. Um, man may not utter. Um, but, but this is that same word, harpazo. He was caught up. He was caught up to heaven. He was caught up to paradise. Um, Another, this, this passage here, 1 Corinthians uh, 15, this is about the rapture as well, but this doesn't use that word rapture. But Paul says, behold, I tell you a mystery. A mystery is something that was, is revealed that wasn't previously revealed. So this is something new that wasn't previously revealed. I, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. But we shall all be changed. We're not all going to die, Paul's saying. But we're all going to be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Remember, you heard about that trumpet in 1 Thessalonians 4. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable. That's those people who have died and fallen asleep and are, are with Christ in heaven right now. The dead will be raised imperishable. They'll be resurrected And we, who are alive on the earth at that time, shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And what's going to happen here is we're just going to be going about our normal business, and all of a sudden, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, Christ comes, and we are resurrected instantly. And Thessalonians tells us that this happens in the air when we meet the dead who have gone before us. And so we're going to meet the saints that went before us with Christ in the air, and we're going to be resurrected in the twinkling of an eye. It's going to be the, just the most amazing thing. It's just at any moment that could happen to us. Now, exactly how that happens and, and all of that, Scripture doesn't go into a whole lot of detail. Now, what's really cool, though, is Paul was expecting this so soon that every time he talks about it, he says, we who are alive, because he thinks that he's going to be alive when this event happens. That's how, that's how much he was expecting it, that it could happen just so soon that we are going to be alive. He doesn't even expect him, himself to be dead. And that's why the Thessalonians are a little bit shaken when some of their, their fellow believers die, because they're thinking, we thought this was going to happen like any second. In fact, that's why some of them were not working. And t- Paul, Paul said, you know, get a job, work, make some food. You know, you got to kind of work with your hands because they were going, man, if this thing's going to happen any minute, I got enough to live for the next few days. Let's just, let's have a good time. Uh, don't do that, but expect this thing at, at any moment. So, um, 
Now, this is another important verse on the rapture. Again, that, that word harpazo is not used, but this is really important. John 14.3. Uh, but I'm going to start in verse 36 and give you a little context. He says, uh, Simon Peter said to him, to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Peter knows Jesus is about to die. I'll lay down my life for you. And, and Jesus says, you know, he kind of goes into the, see this little dot, dot, dot. He kind of goes into what's going to happen with Peter and how he's going to deny him and whatever. But then he comes back to it and he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. Uh, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. So here's the coming of Christ. I will, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Now, when Christ leaves, where does he go after this? Where did Christ go? Where's Christ right now? Sitting at the right hand of the father in, in heaven. And so he says, I'm going to go there. I'm going to die. I'm going to go to heaven and, and I'm going to come again and I'm going to take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. So where are we going to go? To heaven. We're going to go to heaven. Now, if there is no rapture, there is no being with him in heaven. There there, this passage shows us that there has to be a rapture because in the second coming, Jesus comes to earth and he conquers. And then there's a new heaven and a new earth and heaven where Christ was at the right hand of God, then comes down to the earth. And, and so from that point on heaven and earth are one place on the new earth. And so if we're going to ever dwell with Jesus in heaven, where that, where he is, we may also be, it has to happen before the second coming so that there's a time where we will dwell with Christ, um, in heaven, in this, in his father's house, where there's these many rooms. And so that, that's at least another, an argument that I think is, is persuasive for the fact that there's going to be a rapture. Jesus comes, takes us to heaven during the tribulation, and we will dwell with him in heaven during the tribulation, or the other option is we die, and then we will dwell with him in heaven until that second coming. Does that make sense? I hope, I hope that makes sense. So those, are, those are kind of the two options. Either we're here on the earth and we're those who are alive and Christ comes and takes us, we meet him in the air, we go to heaven and spend some time with him and, and that takes us out of the tribulation time. Or we die before that and go immediately to be with Christ in heaven and then we get to come with Christ and meet the other saints in the air and go back with him to heaven and dwell with him during the tribulation period. And so the rapture is this imminent event that could happen at any time. And the rapture, at least to me, appears to be a different event than the second coming. It's, it's a, a different coming of the Lord. And so let's talk about that a little bit. Um, 
in a sense, the rapture isn't even really a full coming of the Lord because in the rapture, Christ never comes right to earth. He meets us in the air and then we go back with him to heaven. Um, So let's look at, let's just look here now at some second coming passages. We're still talking about the rapture, but I want you to see the second coming and just see how this is different than the verses we just looked at. Again, Matthew 24, immediately after the tribulation of those days, we haven't talked about the tribulation, still a future thing. The sun's going to be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then, after you see all those things, will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So here's the second coming. There's all these signs that happen with it. Christ comes to earth, and he's using angels to gather the elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Another second coming passage. It says, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. So again, angels come with him in the second coming. We heard a, a, an angel speaking during the rapture, but we didn't hear of angels coming. We heard of saints coming. So when the son of man comes in his glory and, and the angels with him, Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So when he comes, when the son of man comes, and this is a, a coming in glory and the angels are with him, it says, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Now, right now, Christ is on, we would assume, on a throne at the right hand of the Father. But this seems to be a a, a throne that's associated with his coming. And what happens here is, before him will be gathered all the nations, and he's going to do a a separation of the nations. This This is the second coming. And at the second coming, Christ is going to come, and he's going to now sit on his throne. There's going to be a kingdom and this kingdom is on the earth and he's going to he's going to judge the nations and and do the sheep and the goats judgment at that time. And so second coming is after the tribulations there's signs with it angels come and when he comes he's going to sit on this earthly throne and there's going to be a judgment of the nations and this is going to ha- happen on earth not in heaven. And right after the the Right after the tribulation is when this coming of the Lord happens. Uh, Zechariah 14, Revelation 19 also speak about the second coming. You can look at those on your own. The, the second coming passages always speak about judgment of the nations and the beginning of Christ's reign on the earth. <clears throat> second coming passages have Jesus coming with angels. Rapture has him coming with saints. Second coming passages occur after the tribulation with signs of his coming. Rapture passages never have any signs of his coming. They never say that they're connected to the tribulation. The rapture passages speak about a transformation and a resurrection of saints. Uh, 
where we don't see that in the second coming passages. We don't see a, a, a resurrection of saints. Second coming passages have Jesus coming to earth. Rapture has us meeting the Lord in the air with a return to heaven. So the rat, the, the, at least to my mind, all of that stuff shows us that the rapture and the second coming are different events that have some similarities, but, but are different. So let's talk about the timing of the rapture. When does this thing happen? Um, again, there's several views. There's the view that the rapture and the second coming are one and the same, that, that they happen together after the tribulation. That would be amillennialist, postmillennialist, or post-tribulational rapture views, where, the, where they see the, the rapture and the, and the second coming kind of all as one thing happening after the tribulation. That's, in my mind, that's the wrong view. Then there's another rapture view that the rapture is going to occur at the midpoint of the tribulation. Or there's another view where that says the rapture happens before God's wrath is poured out at some point during the tribulation, maybe in the middle, maybe not quite in the middle. That's called the pre-wrath rapture view. So there's, there's so far mid-tribulation, when there's going to be a tribulation, rapture could be in the middle, Rapture could be before God's wrath comes in the tribulation. Rapture could be at the very end of the tribulation, same as the second coming. Or, this is the view that, that, that I hold, that our church holds. Um, you might not hold, but, but this is what our church teaches. The pre-tribulational rapture view teaches that the church will be raptured before the events of the tribulation. And I think that's the best view because for a lot of reasons. Um, this is what our church teaches. This is, this is a quote from what we teach, uh, from our, our doctrinal statement. We teach the personal bodily return of our Lord Jesus Christ before the seven-year tribulation. Look at the verses they're using there. We, we've looked at those. To translate his church from this earth and between this event and his glorious return with the saints to reward believers according to their works. So, the, the Christ is going to return before the tribulation and um, he's going to translate his church from the, this earth to heaven. And then it, what's going to happen is there's going to be um, between this event, between the rapture and his glorious return with his saints, he's going to reward believers according to their works. So that's what, that's what we teach, a pre-tribulational rapture. Now, what are some reasons why somebody might believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. Well, the first one, and I I think I've got four of these, four reasons. The first reason that I believe there's a pre-tribulational rapture is God has promised to deliver his people, his church, from divine wrath. And there's this special promise in Revelation 3.10. It says, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Now, this is a a promise to one of the seven churches, which applies to all of the churches through all time. And if you you keep my word, because you have kept my word about patience and endurance, in other words, because you are saved— I, Jesus promises, I will keep you from the hour of trial. And, and that's, I will keep you uh, uh, 
Ectes oras. I will, I will keep you out from the, this hour of trial. I will, I will keep you removed from this hour of trial that's coming on the whole world. Well, when is this hour of trial coming on the whole world? Well, if you read through Revelation, there's the promise to the churches. There's a little heavenly interlude in chapter 4 and 5. Then in chapter 6 to chapter 18 is the tribulation, which I think is the hour of trial that's coming upon the whole world. And you can read about all the trial that comes on the whole world from chapter 6 to chapter 18 of Revelation. Chapter 19 of Revelation has the second coming of Christ, his return to the earth to destroy his enemies, set up his kingdom. Chapter 20 talks about the kingdom, the millennial kingdom. Chapter 21 and 22 talks about the new heaven and the new earth. And so Revelation chapter 3, that Jesus promises, I will keep you out from this trial. The trial happens in the next chapters of the book of Revelation, and they're described there. And so there's this promise, I will keep you out from this trial that's coming on the whole world. And in the next chapters, we're going to see what this trial exactly is. So there's this promise, Revelation 3.10, a very important promise to the church. Thessalonians 1.9, again, how you turned from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We as God's people are those who have been promised that we would be delivered from wrath. And actually, when you, when you think about all of through church history, you'll see that that's always been God's way with his people. When, when he's going to pour his wrath out upon the world, he provides a escape for Noah. He provides an escape for Lot. He delivers them out of the, his wrath coming on the world. And he's going to do that same thing for us by taking us out of the world to be with him in heaven and deliver us from this wrath to come. Now, in the context of 1 Thessalonians, the wrath to come... It, most likely not future wrath. We've already been delivered from that, but he's going to deliver us from this wrath to come, this day of the Lord judgment that's coming upon the world. Uh, And we see this a little bit later on, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need that anyone uh, to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The day of the Lord is uh, one of the ways of speaking about the tribulation. So the day of the Lord, we haven't gotten there yet, but the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Then verse 9 says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this tribulation event is going to come like a thief in the night. Um, How does a thief come in the night? Suddenly, unexpectedly, right? Boom, he's on you. And the day of the Lord is going to come like that. And there's going to be this judgment on the world in the day of the Lord. But... God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation. Well, what, what happens right before 1 Thessalonians 5? 1 Thessalonians 4.17. The, we're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. We're going to be delivered from this wrath. 
Now there's this is this was going to probably come later in my notes, but let's talk about it right now. There's two things that happen like the thief in the night in scripture. One is the coming of Christ that happens like the a thief in the night and and we don't know the day or the hour when we expect him. He could come all of a sudden instantly. Same thing, but in the negative sense for the wicked. Same thing in a negative sense for the wicked. The, the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. And it's going to come on the people suddenly when they're going, oh, it's peace and security. Then suddenly destruction will come upon them. Now, I think that this shows that these two things probably happen almost simultaneously. So that we can't tell wh- which one's going to happen when. The moment that all of a sudden the church is taken out in the rapture, all of a sudden these the wicked are caught in this trap and judgment comes upon them suddenly and, and they probably happen at the exact same time. So the rapture delivers us from uh, the day of the Lord. So the tribulation is described as the hour of testing on the whole world. Uh, The tribulation is God's wrath on the unbelieving world. And I don't think you can properly divide the tribulation period into different halves. And so that's why I think the the rapture must happen before the tribulation period. Uh, Gerald Stanton, in uh, in his article, he says, quote, the the judgments of these four seals, and he's talking about the first four judgments, Revelation chapter 6, include sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts, frequently used in scripture as expressions of divine wrath. Indeed, they are all included and named when God calls his four severe judgments upon Jerusalem, sword, famine, wild beasts, and plague. And and what Gerald's arguing for here is the fact that the very first judgments that happen in the book of in the book of revelation the very first judgments in the tribulation are sword famine pestilence and wild beasts those are expressions of god's wrath and so the the very beginning of the tribulation is god's wrath on the on the world and if we are going to be delivered from god's wrath then we have to be delivered even from the very beginning things that happen in the tribulation And so here's those verses that Gerald Stanton was talking about, Revelation 6. He says, When I opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, and it says, And then the the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? The face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath, uh, who can stand the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb? For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And again, this is very, very early in the book of Revelation. It's the wrath of God has come in the tribulation, in the, the great day of the Lord, the great day of their wrath has come. Uh, and, and this is the wrath that we are promised to be delivered from. Uh, Robert Thomas, in his commentary on the book of Revelation, says, 
Men see the arrival of this day at least as early as the cosmic upheavals that characterize the sixth seal. So we're at the, in Revelation 6, 12, we're on the sixth seal already. But, re, but upon reflection, they probably recognize it was already in effect with the day of, with the, with the death of one-fourth of the population that happened in, in Revelation 6, 7, and 8, the worldwide famine, 5 and 6, the global warfare, 3 and 4, the rapid sequence of all these events could not escape public notice, but the light of their true explanation does not dawn upon the human consciousness until the severe phenomena of the sixth seal arrive. So it seems like the wrath is an immediate thing that happens at the very beginning of the tribulation, but men don't recognize it until until verses 12 to 14 of, of this thing. So they, they look back and they say, God's wrath has come. We, we, we want the mountains to fall on us. Nobody can stand this. Um, but it's, it's most likely, at least in my view, that, that this wrath has already happened. And, and the whole tribulation period is God's wrath. Now, another reason, that's, that's, that's a reason. That's the, I think that's the, the first reason why uh, I believe there's a pre-tribulational rapture. God has promised that we would be delivered from this. Another reason is, is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, Paul says here, he says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. So it seems like he's talking about the rapture here. We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So what's going on here? The Thessalonians are shaken because they think somehow they think they've, they're in the day of the Lord. Somebody told them they were in the day of the Lord. In other words, somebody told them they were in the tribulation period and now they're shaken. Why are they shaken? Well, because they weren't expecting to be in the tribulation. They were expecting to be raptured out of the tribulation. So they're going, "Uh Oh, we're in the day of the Lord. We weren't, we didn't think we'd be here. And they're shaken. And Paul says, no, 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 we didn't tell you that. Don't be, don't think that I told you that. You know, if you got a letter or somebody's uh, a spirit or a spoken word or something came, um, he says, let no one deceive you in any way. You're not in the day of the Lord. And then he says, why? For that day will not come. Or this could be translated, that day has not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? So they think they're in the day of the Lord. And and Paul says, you're not in the day of the Lord, because in the day of the Lord, you're going to see this rebellion, this this falling away. You're going to see the man of lawlessness revealed. These are all things in in tribulation in the tribulation period. The son of destruction who opposes himself and exalts himself against every god or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. He, Paul says all of these tribulational things has haven't happened yet. So don't worry, don't be shaken. The day of the Lord hasn't come. You're not in the tribulation period. So the Thessalonians' expectation 
was that they wouldn't be in the day of the Lord. They were told that they were in the day of the Lord and they were shaken. And and that tells us that, that they were expecting to be delivered from this day of the Lord. And so that's another reason. So let's, let's review these reasons. Why do we believe in a pre-tribulational rapture? Because we're promised that we'd be delivered from God's wrath, the tribulation period, because the, the tribulation period is different in its descriptions than the second coming. So they're not the same event. So there's two events that we're expecting, two comings of Christ. The doctrine of Christ's eminent coming, the, 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 the fact that he could come at any moment tells us that the rapture must be before. Because think about it, if, if we could look to the book of Revelation and see some of those signs of, of the things happening in the tribulation, and we saw the man of lawlessness, and we saw, um, I don't know, we saw the, the mark of the beast, and we saw some of these things, then we would know that Christ must be coming pretty soon because these things are already happening and so it's no longer an imminent any time event. And so it would seem that it must happen before the tribulation so that we don't so that it's we can't expect anything to happen. So the the doctrine of Christ's imminent coming best fits with a pre-tribulational rapture. And then the Thessalonians expectations uh, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 uh, I think that that shows us that we should expect a, a pre-tribulational rapture. So those are the reasons for a pre-tribulational rapture. Now, uh, let's go to the second event uh, that we're expecting. Now, um, like I said, there's going to be like question time some other time if you need it. Um, there's a lot of stuff to to kind of grab here and get, but... That's the first thing that's going to happen, at least in my understanding, the rapture is going to happen, and it's going to deliver us from this time called the tribulation. Now, the word tribulation simply means distress, oppression, affliction, tribulation. Uh, It's used generally in scripture to speak of various kinds of trouble, but the word tribulation is also used specifically as kind of a technical term to talk about this time period that's described throughout scripture as a a seven-year period of tribulation, a seven-year period of distress, affliction, and wrath on the earth that leads up to the second coming of Christ, the return of Christ. And so there's this, this time period called the Great Tribulation that's a seven-year period that happens before the coming of Christ. And this tribulation or this Great Tribulation goes by several names in scripture. So there's, there's several names that, that are synonyms that talk about this one time period. But this time period has a few things in common. It's always seven years long, if there's a, a time give, description given. It's a seven-year period, broken up into two halves. And it's called the, 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 the most distressing time that's ever been on the earth in all of the passages that talk about it. So it's the, it's the most severe time on the earth that if those days weren't shortened, nobody would survive. So it's a, it's a horrible, horrible time on the earth. I am so glad that we aren't going to be there for this time. But here's the tribulation. Matthew 24, 21. These are just words for the tribulation. There will be a, for then there will be great tribulation, 
such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now and never will be. So again, very clearly the worst time ever in history. Jesus calls it a great tribulation. It's also called the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh, the day of Yahweh. Jeremiah 30 verse 7, alas, the day, that day is so great, there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. So it's such a, a great day, there's none like it. Same, same day that they're talking about here, it's, it's the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh in the context of Jeremiah 30 and verse 7. Uh, no day like it. Joel chapter 2. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. The day of Yahweh is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people that like have never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Again, a a day like no other, a a time period like no other. And one of the things that we we see in particular about this day of the Lord, it's a day that involves Israel. It's a a day that involves Jacob, the people of Israel. Um, It's never a day that's spoken about for the church. If, if we were going to go through the worst day of all time, you'd think that at least somewhere in the epistles, someone, one of the apostles or somebody would, would tell us how to make it through that day. But we're not instructed anything about how to make it through this tribulation. Again, I believe because we're going to be taken out of it, but this is the worst time in the world. It's also called, this tribulation is called the wrath of God. And we see that in 1 Thessalonians 1, we looked at that 5 Revelation 6, the the wrath of the Lamb has come upon us. Also, Revelation 11, 18. The tribulation period is also called the 70th week of Daniel, and we're not going to spend a lot of time there. But Daniel 9, 24 to 27 speaks about these 69 weeks, and, and those 69 weeks that Daniel gives lead exactly up to the moment that Christ came to the earth, either to die on the cross or um, there's two different ways to calculate it, but it's it's amazing that from the day of, of the decree of Cyrus to the time of Christ, it's exactly 490 years, which is 69 times 7. And, um, amazing thing. But the, the 70th week of Daniel hasn't happened yet. So there's these 69 weeks that Daniel talks about. The 70th week hasn't happened yet. But this 70th week of Daniel is a time period of seven years. Each week is a, a is a is seven years in Daniel, so um, seven times sixty nine must be four hundred and ninety. But you you can kind of you can check my math on that later. Uh, don't worry about all that. Seventieth week of Daniel divided into two periods of three and a half years in Daniel nine twenty seven. It's called times times and a half time. So three and a half is times times and a half time. Daniel 7.25. In Revelation 11, 2 and, and, and 13.5, it's divided into 42 months, which if you, 42 months and, um, did I write that right? Let's go to, Reve, let's just look, Revelation 11, something's not, 
Some, my math sense is going, something's not right, Mike. What's going on here? Forty-two months. How does that work, Phil? Tell me, because I'm just I'm up here teaching and I can't quite. That's right. Thir- Forty-two months is three and a half years, right? Th- thank you. Sorry, somehow just I'm up here. I'm kind of nervous, and I'm just like I can't do math and do this at the same time. Um, th- that's three and a half years. So three and a half years. Three and a half years. Three and a half years, 1,260 days, that's going to be three and a half years, um, I'm pretty sure. So um, those are, that's how the, the tribulation always is, seven years divided into two periods, right to the day, and then after that Christ comes. So if we were in the tribulation, we would know the day and the hour because we would know right to the day, three and a half years from the beginning of it, and another three and a half years, I might not know, but somebody who could do math on the fly, they would definitely know right to the day and the hour. So um, there you go. That's uh, The tribulation is also called the 70th week of Daniel. It's a time of great suffering and judgment on the earth. This is the time, the tribulation, when the Antichrist reigns. Eventually, he reigns over the entire world. He's also called the man of lawlessness. He's called the beast. He's called the little horn in Daniel 7. He's called the prince in Daniel chapter 9. And um, this is the the Antichrist reigning over uh, a one-world government, at, at least at some point in the tribulation. It's also the time of the false prophet, sometimes called uh, the second beast, This is the time period that's covered in Revelation 6 to Revelation 18, the tribulation period. This time is uh, like a thief in the night. It, It happens almost at any time. All of a sudden, the world is caught in this in this time. This is also this tribulation is also the time where the mark of the beast happens. I know sometimes um, around around town here, we're afraid of the mark of the beast. When is this mark of the beast? We will, at least according to my eschatology, we will not be here during the time of the mark of the beast. And so you don't have to worry that you're accidentally going to get this mark of the beast. Um, you don't have to worry about that because that's in the tribulation time. Now, just just to be safe... Don't take some mark that makes you worship somebody called the man of lawlessness and antichrist who sets himself up in the temple and declares himself to be God and wants worship. Just worship Christ alone and you'll be okay as far as the mark of the beast goes. Okay, But it's in the tribulation period where we're not, um, we're not really told to worry about that so much. Um, <clears throat> During the tribulation period, there's lots of things that happen. I'm not going to be able to say everything, but a great number of the Jews will be saved. And it it seems that uh, to end in the salvation of all the Jews that remain. Now, Zechariah um, Zechariah 12, 13 talks about how 
um, a third of the Jews are going to die and then another third and there's like a third left and those ones are going to be saved. So lots of Jews are going to die during this time. There's going to be a persecution of the Jews. Revelation chapter 12 talks about how the Jews are going to be delivered by some kind of an escape into the wilderness and Satan's going to be mad and he can't get them. And so then he goes to persecute the rest of the world because he can't get the Jews. And so somehow some of them are protected in the wilderness in this time. And the, the, the remaining Jews, according to Romans eleven twenty six, even in the New Testament, are going to be saved. And this is where Paul talks about all Israel are going to be saved. The, the remnant of Israel that survives this horrible time are going to be saved. Also, during the tribulation, a great number of Gentiles are saved. And we see this heavenly scene in Revelation 7, 9, where there's this great multitude of people that are saved. And, and John goes, who are these? And the angels uh, says something back to him. And then, and then there's this thing where the angel says, you know who they are. Or maybe John says, no, you, no, you know who they are to the angel. And the angel says, these are those who come out of the great tribulation whose robes have been made white and they've, they've been saved during this time. Now, unfortunately, they're also killed during this time. But there's a, there's a lot of salvation going on in this time through the 144,000 witnesses you probably read about, through the angel that flies around at that time preaching the gospel. You will know you're in the tribulation when you see an angel flying through heaven preaching the gospel. That's a good sign for you to know. So, um, so, so you'll, you'll know you're not in that, uh, tribulation. So, um, at the end of the tribulation is the second coming. At the end of the tribulation is the second coming, the return of Christ to the earth. Christ returns. He triumphs over the armies of the earth who have gathered together against Jerusalem. And you can read about that in Matthew 24, Revelation chapter 19, the whole chapter is about the return of Christ. Daniel 7, 13 and 14, he comes on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. And Zechariah 14 goes even in detail that his feet are going to be on the Mount of Olives, which is amazing because when he spoke about those things in Matthew 24, he was on the Mount of Olives. And so he kind of comes back there and the mountains split and a, a new river flows out of Jerusalem and um, and Christ now comes to the earth, destroys his enemies. It's a it's a horrible, gruesome scene. It's a, a feast for the birds of the earth in Revelation 19, and um, and and Christ executes judgment, final judgment on on the world, and now he establishes his kingdom. And so here it is, Revelation 19, the second coming of Christ. This is the the third event, we rapture, tribulation, end of the tribulation, second coming, Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are a f- like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And so there we know this is the Lord Jesus Christ coming out of heaven on a white horse. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And so the armies of heaven, the the host of heaven, most likely um, angels here coming with him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations 
and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so here's the the regal coming of Christ, not the rapture coming, but the regal coming of Christ to conquer and to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Continuing on, then I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice, he called out to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both slave and uh, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army and the beast was captured and with it, the false prophet. This is the, again, this is the end of the tribulation. These are the, the, this is the, the man of lawlessness, the antichrist and the, the false prophet with him who in, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came out from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and the birds were gorged with their flesh. And so here's a giant feast for the birds, and uh, as they, they uh, really this horrible scene of, of, of Christ really conquering the, his enemies, but uh, his wrath is poured out on the world to the uttermost. Again, this same period, Matthew 24, um, Jesus spoke about it himself. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, again, immediately after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken, then will appear the sign of the Son of Man, then the, all the tribes will, of the earth will mourn, And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. They will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. So there's there's some elect that are remaining on the earth during the tribulation period. They're going to be gathered by angels and saved as Christ seems to destroy really everyone that's else that's left on the earth. Matthew 25, same period. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate one or people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. The king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you, from before the foundation of the world. And so here Christ comes in his glory. He's going to sit on his throne. The nations are going to be gathered to him. And there's going to be this judgment. And the, the righteous remnant that, that come to this judgment are going to inherit the kingdom. They're going to inherit the kingdom of God that's been prepared for them from the foundation of the world. The, the goats in that judgment go into the lake of fire. And so this is the the second coming of Christ. Then the king will say, notice that that's a really key word there. Then the king will say, 
come and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So that's the second coming. And the second coming then leads right into the kingdom of God, the millennial kingdom. Oh boy. <laughs> it is it is later than I thought, hey? Wow. So, so there's a couple things you just learned about me tonight. One is... Not very good at math when I'm up here on the fly, nor can I tell, read my watch actually. Sometimes I look at it and I just, I make it say what I want it to say. I wanted it to say like 8.15 or something, but then I was looking here, it says an hour and 38 minutes and I'm going, oh boy, okay. Um, So we got to wrap this up really quick. The millennial kingdom. Oh, I really want to tell you about the millennial kingdom. Um... Hammer, Dwayne says, hammer it out. <laughs> How are your kids doing down there, Dwayne? <laughs> they, are, they are great. I'm more worried about how Will's doing. Yeah. <laughs> um, where's Chrissy? Is she in here? Yeah, see? Uh, okay, so she knows. Um, we're going to have to have another fellowship time, and I'm going to tell you about the Millennial Kingdom and about the Eternal State. So... Um, as well as all the judgments and resurrections and stuff like that, okay? So, and a Q&A, yeah, for sure. So, um, wow, you guys have been so patient. Um, thank you so much for being here. Uh, God bless you, and uh, let's, we got to close this like all things we, pr- we should pray, so... Father, thank you for um, our time together tonight. Uh, it's just almost disappointing, at least for me, to not be able to finish this. But um, we thank you for your future plans. We thank you that you are a God who knows the beginning from the end and has revealed these things to us to really motivate us and help us to uh, live for you in this world. And I, I pray that these things that we've talked about tonight, that they wouldn't just be information, but that it would it would really drive us and motivate us and encourage us to be faithful uh, in your service. And we ask that, that, that that would happen in Jesus' name. Amen.